Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Allwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're each talking about a book that we have recently read. But before we get into all that literary stuff, what is going on? Well, since recording this episode, the Emmy Award results have come in, and Rivers of London won silver for the best rules, and How We Roll won silver for best podcast. So thank you very much to everyone out there who voted for us. And we would also like to congratulate our good friend Seth Skorkowski for winning the gold award for best podcast. And now on to our main topic, media catch-up, books. We've reached that point in our release schedule where we chat about some of the books we've been reading recently and how they may have influenced us. Well, do you want to kick us off, Matt? Going back to one of our earlier editions, I think it was actually the first time we discussed books, which was uh, during the Baccaroni lockdown specials. In fact, number two was our first books issue. I totally thought you said the Macaroni books. Hey, Macarena. <laughs> Going back to those. In those traditions, we agreed, yeah, we'd talk about a single book each. So what does Scott do? He launches in with two books. So I'm going to take a leaf out of his book and I'm going to jump in with two myself. <laughs> okay. It's rare that I manage to finish, A, two books within a year, and B, one of them in the quick period of time that I did. These two books are linked, so if you know what one is, you're probably going to guess what the other one is. Going back to my favourite author, James Herbert going back to the second book of the Rats trilogy, Lair, which is it's a direct continuation of the first book. It's quite a different book in a lot of respects, that it's not quite the gratuitous kind of schlock horror that the first book, The Rats, had. The Rats began with a rat that was brought back from a nuclear testing island in the, I think it was the South Pacific or somewhere out in Indonesia, somewhere that way. And a scientist was looking to see what the effects would have been of radiation on this rat. And it became quite horrible. It grew a second head. It grew to monumental size to the point where it couldn't really move. It was this bloated mass that was trapped in a basement. But somehow it was still able to fornicate with the other normal black rats that were existent in London. And as time goes on, rats have many, many litters. So you've got this exponentially growing population of these mutant rats that are hungry for human blood. So, of course, they kill the owner of the house where they're stuck, and then they slowly spread out into London and carnage ensues. There was a film that was based on it, I think back in the 80s, that was a Canadian production called uh, Deadly Eyes. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, being able to track it down is proving a little difficult, but at least in a modern format. I vaguely remember that, and you're not missing much. Yeah. The only bit of information about the production that's kind of stuck with me is that there was a quite a bit of controversy at the time because the way that they had portrayed the rats in the film were effectively dogs that were dressed up in uh, rat outfits. <laughs> 
it's accurate in terms of the size of how the beasts are portrayed in the book, <laughs> but there were actually a few poor animals that were killed as a result of the conditions that they were forced to work in. Oh, I feel bad for laughing now. Yeah. <laughs> that's something that's happened quite a lot in films. I think it was Food of the Gods, they did exactly the same thing, where there were giant rodents and that, that were dogs that were dressed up. And I'm sure there was, was it Kingdom of the Spiders? There was a giant spider movie in the late 70s, early 80s, where they basically, yeah, just put spider costumes on dogs and had them run around. Ah, no, so I'm not, not familiar with either of those. But, yeah, so you have these rats running around in London, killing everything they come across. There's kind of a little bit of a subplot that goes nowhere about how they have a disease that they carry, but then after so many litters, that kind of goes away. And yeah, you just have this basically monster romp in book format. It's quite a short book as well. Lair picks up about five years afterwards, where the the country is still in a, in a state of wariness. There's teams which are actually more directly connected to the first book. The company that was involved in exterminating the rats in the first book comes back in this. And they're kind of heading the effort to make sure that farmers report any weird instances of rats appearing on their farms, any signs of gnawing on food being left out, any weird rats that look particularly black or particularly large. They kind of walk in and stomp on it. And they've, they've been small incursions and small pockets found after the first wave were got rid of in London in the end of the first book. The reason why I chose this, and it's probably a good point to jump in uh, to speak about why I went back to have a look at this book, because I've been meaning to read it for years, it's just been sat on my shelf like many, many other books that are currently around me, was that we keep chickens at our house in our back garden, as do quite a few people in the village, because there used to be a battery farm around here. When the farm shut down, a load of the villagers picked up chickens, and then you had quite a common sight. There were lots of back gardens that had their own little pens and took in a lot of the old battery hens. Ourselves, we've got a pen. Then a couple of doors down, they've got one, and there used to be one in between as well. There's been a bit of redevelopment on the other side of the field behind our house, and all the rats that were over there had just swarmed across the field and come directly towards our house. Mm. And after hearing some of the horror stories about what the rats had done to some of the chickens a couple of doors down, we basically laid a whole lot of concrete slabs down in the bottom of our pen so they couldn't get in there anymore. Before having done that, we could walk into our pen and just see these lard rats that were cozying up alongside our chickens, either eating the food straight out of their dispensers or looking like they're eyeing up the poor hens. We thought, no, lay down some slabs and they can't get in. Our neighbours a few doors down were not so lucky, and there was stories of some trauma that was involved with one of the kids seeing a rat take away one of their prized chickens in a quite horrible and gruesome manner. Mm. And that kind of prompted me to go back and have a look at this, because it's, it made me look at the books through quite a lens of personal experience before. I used to keep pet rats, but I never ended up with an infestation of chickens as a result. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of things that occurred to me here. One is, I'm wondering now if Americans refer to battery hens, because otherwise they're going to be thinking, like, do androids dream of battery <laughs> hens? <laughs> I'm just wondering if that term, you know, because we have so many terms that we use. Yeah. So we're talking about, like, birds caged in tiny cages, basically, for, for laying eggs. It may well be that they use exactly the same term, but uh, that just amused me. How do you think those electric sheep are powered? Well, yes. And secondly, it just you talking of rats and chickens just brings back to mind growing up on a farm and images of being in a dark old 
room at night in one of the the old mill, which is uh, hundreds of years old. Apparently, I think it's in the Doomsday Book, and we kept chickens in there. And I just remember being in there with, I think, at least two people with shotguns, and we had like string tied around our trouser legs. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, yeah. My friend Rob, who I used to share a flat with, I interviewed him on the podcast a while back, he used to work for Rent-A-Kill when we shared a flat together, and his patch used to be in Soho in London. And he, he told me some fairly horrific stories of what rat infestations were like there and the difficulties of dealing with, with cornered rats when you, you manage to catch them in oh, the yeah. cellars and how vicious they'd get. Yeah. He said that until the first time he'd cornered a rat like that, he didn't realise that rats could growl. Mm-hmm. Mm. They can jump too. Oh, God, yeah. They're quite vicious little things. But God, riffing off what Scott said about keeping rats, I know a couple of my friends keep them, which is, again, why I've looked at this book through a quite different lens now, because I'm as I mentioned on the podcast, I'm not particularly happy when I come across animal cruelty being depicted in media. It's something that does quite upset me. But then this book really had me in a kind of conflicted state because rats are vermin or can be vermin, but they can also be cute and adorable pets. So they have this duality. So when you have scenes where there's these large pockets, these large colonies that are being wiped out, it was actually quite tearful the way that they described as the rats as they die off are like screaming children that there are these essentially what are poor animals that are being slaughtered you're supposed to look at them as the reader has been are they monsters you're not supposed to feel sorry for them but even so herbert does depict them as being that yeah they have human qualities that's something that i'll get into in the second book i'll talk about just regarding your portrayal of rats matt and the historic use of dogs dressed up as rats I recommend watching the episode of Beasts called During Barty's Party, oh, yes. where there's a rat infestation. But the wonderful thing is, it is scary, and you hear them, but you never see any rats. Yeah. Uh, but the people in the show see rats. When they're looking out, you see them looking at the rats, but you don't see the actual rats themselves, which I think would have really undermined the the horror of the of the show if they had have shown the rats. Because, well, I guess they could have just used actual rats because that's what they weren't, monstrous rats. Um, so they could have just used actual rats. but Yeah, I still remember seeing that episode for the first time. I think it was the first episode of Beast they showed, at least in Hong Kong, when I was a kid. And just was sitting there absolutely petrified watching that programme. <laughs> I keep meaning to get hold of the box set because both of you talked about it quite highly. So it's definitely on my list to get. Yeah, they are available on YouTube. Mm. Oh, yeah. In which case, I will try and look on YouTube then. Oh, yeah, they're all there. But yeah, besides the kind of the humanising of the antagonist that, say, on the surface is supposed to be just this furry monster that needs to be exterminated, the other thing that really grabbed my interest in the book is that whereas the first one is very much just there's an infestation, we've got to get rid of it, which I can see would be something that would happen in a role-playing game setting if you have this wave of monsters coming at you that, yeah, you've just got to kill them all and it's got to go all murder hobo on them. With this, it presented a very different setting. So rather than it being in the inner cities of London, you've got the setting is transferred to Epping Forest mm. and that it's a much more rural environment. Effectively, it's still a rural environment within the outskirts of London itself, but it presents very different challenges. There's not really they're hiding out in buildings anymore. They're in a very 
but it turns out they are in a building at the end. That's where the eponymous lair is, that it's in a ruined, old, deserted manor house that was gutted by fire years ago. But there are other various pockets that exist in different parts of the woods. And it goes into the political structure and what makes up the forest, at least uh, what was the, at the time of writing. I think this was written back in 1979. There are the various different groups and bodies that maintain the forest. It gets funding from various different organisations and from boroughs within London. And that just trying to evacuate all these people that would have lived in that area causes more issues. That It gives other political bodies that want to turn it into a more publicly funded or publicly run place. It gives them a foothold to try and get into it. So it presented, rather than just a very bland, oh yeah, we've got to get out, it presented a very thought out reason for having someone or at least a plot device that would counter that to say no you can't evacuate because of xyz not just because hey the plot says you can't do it so we need to have a few more scenes of people getting bored by rats but there was mm. that different side to the story that hadn't been there previously that there was a legitimate and human antagonist in that which well, that interested me and something i thought i could strive to do that more in my scenarios present the bad guy as being someone that you could really kind of empathize with mm. oh yeah something I think that isn't done as much in these kind of, you know, if you parallel it to a monster film, it's not something you see much in that particular genre of movies. That's the main things that came up on Lair. And then I thought, well, the last one, so the rats had that one page at the end of the book that kind of set this one up as being, oh, here's a load of rats in a basement that escaped. And it does the same thing with the end of Lair, that there is the one rat with a scar down the side of its face that's kind of skulking back <laughs> towards London. So I think, I'll just pick up the third book, Domain. <laughs> so how does that pick up? I read it in three days, which is almost unheard of for me. I could not put Domain down. I read the first chapter thinking, okay, this is different. This isn't picking up exactly as Leia finished it, so it's some years again further on. And then the opening vignette, because Herbert's setup is that he normally writes little vignettes, so it's almost like little short stories that you can pin together to form a novel thread. Appropriate word I should use there. Yes. The opening depiction of what happens when a nuclear bomb gets dropped on London was that reading threads, it was so graphic, so visceral and downright fucking horrible. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was so horrible, I couldn't put it down. Yeah, that's very you, Matt. <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah, it was just so gripping and so intense that I didn't want to put it down. Mm. The book's divided into three sections. What happens when the bomb drops? The main characters that you follow get into a shelter. And then the second bit, they come out of the shelter and start to explore what happens down below for various reasons. The shelter is compromised. And then the third section, them trying to find another shelter to evade the ongoing effects of fallout. And yeah, I, I read each one in the space of a day. That's the fastest I've read a book. And this is twice the size of Lair, which took me several months to get through. And yeah, the domain three consecutive days, I just ploughed through it. Wow. Which is, is rare for me because it doesn't normally happen that a book grabs me and holds me that tightly. Mm. The things I found so compelling with it, the fact it is such a graphic, harrowing, nightmare scenario, is that it kind of struck me very much how The Walking Dead is uh, structured. All our survivors get together, they find somewhere safe, something bad happens, then you've got to move on and find another place. So that, whereas the Walking Dead series or graphic novels and such have gone through that repeated formula again and again and again and again, at least this was just that one loop of something really bad happens, in this case, the onset of nuclear war. 
London being almost levelled, finding a bunker, then something bad happens at the bunker, then they've got to find somewhere else. That somewhere else had been signposted early on as being one of the other bunkers that they tried to communicate with. But uh, foreshadowing the end here, something bad has happened with the communication relays in between and they can't make contact. Or rather, so they think, it's more actually that something bad has happened at the main bunker. I found it quite a nice change of pace that it just went through this loop once rather than having to go through it ad infinitum like the TV series does. And it was also quite nice that there were certain beats that were replicated between each of the novels, that you have this discussion or this shadowy figure of this mutant rat that's kind of the big bad boss at the end of the book. But the things do subtly change with each instance. It's not just like a rehash going from a last encounter where humans find big rat in its lair, kill it, and then, yay, we've all finally solved the problem. This does evolve that you've got in layer. There is a rebellion that takes place amongst the rats. There's this one rat with a scar that really resents its kind of mind-controlling mutant overlord and leads a kind of coup d'etat against the big mutant at the end. And with Domain, once they realise that the big nuclear bunker that was supposed to hold the royal family, the government and such, was built right on top of a rat's lair where this mutant had been waiting in an old abandoned World War II bomb shelter and killed everyone above it when they all came down to avoid the bomb going off. Is that, uh, what's it called, Burlington or something? The big shelter that they built for continuation of government and the royal family. This, this Basically, this city that they built mm. under the ground is this huge shelter. I think it was called Burlington. I think Kerbert gives it a more fictionalised name in the book. It's described as being accessible very near the Thames, very much across the river, or not across the river, very much near the Houses of Parliament, so that mm. anyone that was near there on embankment could descend to the nearest shelter and, as you say, emerge in this grand underground city, which for all intents and purposes it is in the book. Yeah, I think the real one is located, I I want to say somewhere out towards Wiltshire, but I may be wrong. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they arrive down in this big government shelter at the end, trying to find any other survivors, finding that they've all been slaughtered, but also that there's still this mother rat down below. But the reveal at the end of that almost again strikes me as a reminiscent of the end of Wayward Pines, hmm. that the rats have started to give birth, but the mutant offspring from this particular mother rat are almost human. They have rats' tails. It takes that abomination of mutation to another hmm. fork in the road, where you've got the protagonist at the end of the book almost laughing maniacally, very much like a Cthulhu investigator that's taken one too many sand hits, wondering, <laughs> did we actually descend from monkeys? Are we potentially descended from rats? Will rats inherit the earth? And the bombed out wreckage of this radioactive wasteland of London becomes the rat's domain, which of sets it up for the graphic novel that followed this, The City, which I did also read, but I don't think there's any much need going into that because it's a very short tale. So it's the dawn of the furries. <laughs> <sighs> Our friend Robin's going to love it. They were more naked rats. Well, naked rat human babies with tails. But I love how the fact that you just gripped me so much. It was horrific with these little vignettes of what you thought. Yeah, what Threads wasn't bad enough. It wasn't horrific enough. We had some mutant killer rats on top of it to really make <laughs> it that more fucked up. Honestly, I don't think adding mutant rats to Threads would have made it any more depressing. <laughs> it was bad enough on its own, thanks. Yeah, it's the realism of it that makes it 
So, and, and also it's a reflection of the time, isn't it? The early 80s, because we also had When the Wind Blows, Raymond Briggs's book from yeah. 1982, which you know, is again, is about the nuclear holocaust hitting Britain. It was a real and present fear. And thanks to Putin, it's back with us again. Also Black Mirror with their recent series, the very last episode yeah. of that has a very reminiscent of this story. When we were watching mm. the last episode, Demon 79, I think it was called, or... yeah. Yeah, we're watching this. Hang on, there's headlines about this nuclear escalation in the Middle East, just like in Domain. Hang on a minute, something's going to happen here, isn't it? And sure enough, yes, it does. <laughs> Thanks for that, Matt. So that was uh, James Herbert, The Lair, and is it just Domain or The Domain? They're singular in both cases. It's just Lair and Domain. Yeah, good old one-word titles. Mm-hmm. And what do you have for us this time, Paul? So my book I'm going to talk about is All the Pretty Horses from 1992. Oh, yes. Written by Cormac McCarthy. I noted recently that he passed away. He died in June 2023, aged 89. I didn't realise he was as old as he was. His output isn't that vast, and he wasn't really recognised for his writing until quite a long way into his career, Mm. although he was critically recognised with some awards and funding and so on. And, and while I'm on the topic of his life, I, I was interested because I, I just looked him up. To be honest, I don't know a great deal about him, but I, I looked him up. He was born in Providence. Oh. Yeah, hometown of H.P. Lovecraft. And he was born in 1933, so he would have been there when Lovecraft was there, but he was only a very young child. And by some strange coincidence, his family relocated in 1937, the year of Lovecraft's death. But obviously, there's, there's no relationship with Lovecraft here, as far as I know. I mean, who knows, right? <laughs> His father, I think, was a lawyer. So they, they then moved to Tennessee. And it sounds like he had a pretty interesting life. Anyway, back to All the Pretty Horses. If you're not familiar with Cormac McCarthy, you're probably familiar with a couple of his works which have been adapted into films, namely The Road and No Country for Old Men, both of which were pretty big successes, pretty big, well, I was going to say box office hits. I don't know if they were box office hits, but they were, they were pretty successful yeah, movies. Yeah, reasonably. I think so. And I've read both of those as well, and I'll, I'll just touch on both of those books as well. I kind of got a little confused here. I knew that he'd written a book sort of set in the in the Wild West, in the kind of cowboy era, and that was the one I was after. And I thought, Pretty Horses, this must be it, right? <laughs> but it isn't, because the one I wanted was Blood Meridian, but yeah. I ended up with all the Pretty Horses. And I looked at the start of it, and it's, you know, it seems like it could be, because he's, he's in Texas, and he's riding horses, and there's a ranch and stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, so this is 1880s or something. And then he mentions like his grandfather was the first person to die in this house. And he mentions a few periods and times and ages. And with a little bit of maths, it's like, oh, no, this is 1949. And there is reference to people driving cars. But other than that, you could probably jump this back a number of decades if you wanted, because a lot of the rest of it is him and his buddy. So I say him, a fellow called John Cole. And a buddy of his, they leave the ranch in Texas and they just head out and they head out. And the story just follows them traveling over the border from Texas down into Mexico. And it follows their journey. And now it's striking that 
the age of these characters, you know, I guess this is a different time. You know, this is uh, the 1940s, and these people are only 16, maybe one 17, but they're, they're, the lead character, John Cole, is, is 16. I don't think anybody would write a 16-year-old like this in the modern day because he's very much like he's a man. All the stuff that happens to him is, is very adult. And it happens in a series of events, much like his, the other two books of his that I've read. They, they're not like random events, but it's like you're just going through life and things happen. It doesn't feel like the book is about an event. You know, it's like we have a murder mystery. It's about a murder mystery. Mm. It's about an investigation or something. You can't really say this book. It's difficult to encapsulate what this book is about. It's about a period in a person's life when they go on a journey down into Mexico. And this journey involves the two guys on horseback and they're just riding. They're just going off to make a new life really, or, or on an adventure. It's like a, you know, like a gap year almost nowadays, <laughs> but not a gap year that anybody would want to experience. So they meet up with another person on horseback, another young man like them who has left Texas for some reason. A young, young man who tells them his name is Jimmy Blevins. And when I say he tells them his name, because obviously that's not his name. And he's on a horse, he's on a big, nice horse. And they figure that, I don't know quite how they figure, but this is a stolen horse. And Jimmy Blevins is trouble. But they kind of hook up, as you do when you're traveling, you hook up with people and you don't know their background, but you're there together in a foreign land and you just hook up with people because you've got the commonality of where you come from. And as I said, Jimmy Blevins is trouble and John Cole and his friend, it leads to them being imprisoned. No prison is nice. This one is particularly not nice. And they're two young American men or boys in a harsh prison, a harsh prison that is ruled by, well, not ruled really. There's some internal discipline, but it's enforced by one of the inmates who is, is a curious character. And they both get into fights, constant fights and beatings. And the way Cormac McCarthy writes violence. It doesn't glorify it, but it, it's graphic. Mm. But it's not gratuitously graphic. You know, you do feel like this is blood and steel and anything could happen here. And really, I do feel like anything could happen here because it does feel like John Cole, is he going to survive? I don't know. He does, but he takes some very bad injuries. He manages to kill a man. Uh, he feels very bad about it. And he talks about that towards the end of the book, how, how he feels bad about this, having killed somebody. He talks about this to a, a judge. He has this great phrase. He sort of says, you know, uh, John Coles says, you know, I, I killed this guy. You know, maybe he was like, I think he calls him a good old boy. And the judge is like, he wasn't a good old boy though, was he? And he's like, no, I, I guess he wasn't. But it's just his conscience, you know, talking to him. But Ultimately, John Cole, he does, you know, he makes the journey back to his homeland. But it's, I guess, ultimately, it's not really his home anymore. The experiences he's been through and the disillusionment that he's been through and the near-death experiences and the a failed romance. There was one part in the middle of the book when the two boys work on a Mexican ranch for a well-to-do family and John Cole 
has a kind of budding relationship, a romantic relationship with the, the rancher's daughter, who is sort of socially outranks him. She's The family is sort of much above these casual farmhands that, that he is. And that relationship is stamped down on, although obviously the two young lovers try to pursue it. And within that, we get John Cole talks to this young Mexican girl's elderly aunt. And then we get a bunch of Mexican history and discussion of the role of women in that society and the, and the way they're compelled to follow this very strict role that women of the time were compelled to adhere to. There were parts of that section that, to be honest, I got a little bored with. There was a lot of stuff about breaking horses. I'm guessing McCarthy has got a, a love of horses that I don't really share. And for my taste, there was a little much of that. But again, it, it, it gives that feeling of being there. When you read a Cormac McCarthy book, I'm not that well read. I don't know, maybe there are, other, there are other people that write like this. But for me, he doesn't write like other people. His use of language is very sparse. His use yeah. of punctuation is even sparser. Yeah, I just found a quote, a couple of quotes that really amused me. He doesn't use speech marks, right? So he just writes yeah. the dialogue. And the dialogue is quite terse anyway, so it's not expansive. But it will just be line by line. But it's pretty clear who's speaking. That's something I've seen Irish writers do. Mm. James Joyce did that, and Roddy Doyle, I seem to remember, used punctuation the same way. Didn't use quote marks, used indentations to highlight speech, or maybe leading dashes, I think. I'm sure there was another writer I came across who did the same thing. Flann O'Brien, maybe. But yeah, it's, it certainly seems to be a very Irish thing. The quote was that he didn't use quotation marks for dialogue and believed there is no reason to, and then, ironically, I'm going to say, quote, <laughs> blot up the page with weird little marks. <laughs> yes. But even funnier than that, he says uh, he uses capital letters, periods, and an occasional comma, or a colon, for setting off a list, <laughs> he says, but never semicolons, which he labelled as idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I never thought I'd find punctuation so comedic. Just, I don't know why, but I just find the fact that he calls uh, semicolons idiocy just uh, so funny. Yeah. He's a great intellectual as well. I, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at some of his essays about things and, uh, you know, the guy was, yeah, a very clever guy. Though the stuff they wrote was very, very different, his prose style, not the punctuation bit, but the terseness and the use of language, actually reminds me an awful lot of Elmore Leonard. He had a very right. similar style, very similar approach. It was all very short, punchy, almost no adjectives, adverbs, just short, brutal prose, you know, very short sentences, direct, stripped to the absolute bone. James Elroy is very much the same. It's not a page turner, but it's not difficult reading. And I stopped at one point. I was thinking, what what am I reading here? What how is he doing this with the language? And looking at the page, it's like there's no difficult words here. There's no challenging vocabulary. He's not showing off his knowledge of vocabulary. I'm sure he's got a very expansive vocabulary, but he's not showing it off here. One thing he does do in places is use Spanish dialogue. Hmm. Well, the Spanish language in dialogue. But I thought I can just use Google Translate here like Babelfish and just hold it up to the book and it will translate it in real time for me to read that. But then I thought there's not that much of it. 
it just kind of washes over me. There are bits that I can pick up, little words of Spanish. So it wasn't an obstacle. Yeah. I am tempted to go back to do that with one or two parts. But yeah, it's just an observation. But I think more than anything, that just gives a flavour of the place. You know, it's like when you are in a different mm. country and hearing people speak you know, a language that isn't yours. It gives a, a feeling of, of place, of, of it being Mexico. I had a very similar experience recently reading some of Gabino Iglesias' stuff, a contemporary crime-slash-horror writer, Mexican-American, who writes stuff set around the border, and his characters tend to slip in and out of English and Spanish the whole time, and he doesn't provide mm. English translations for any of the Spanish. But it's, it's the same kind of thing that you kind of pick it up from context and from the occasional words you can glean. Yeah, Andalay and Vermoose were two words that I knew from films, right? From from cowboy films and I don't know what else, just from movies. Speedy Gonzales. Yeah, probably, yeah. You know, just things that I've absorbed. I'm not... Like, that's my 1% Call of Cthulhu speak Spanish skill. It gives me about three words that I've just absorbed somehow. And I think this book has a number of things in common with his other books. So like The Road and No Country Old Many explores some of the same themes. And you can see the language and the way people speak is similar. Very kind of down-to-earth way of speaking that feels like, I don't know, old-timers might use. He has this thing about, well, he has something about fate as well, particularly in No Country Old Men with mm. Anton Chigurh doing the, the coin tossing thing. There's that fantastic scene in, in the shop when he, he talks to the shopkeeper and it's clear to us, the viewer, that the shopkeeper's life is hanging on a thread because we've seen what Chigurh is like. He tosses the coin and gets the shopkeeper to call it, but he doesn't tell what the shopkeeper what he's calling for, but we know mm. it's his life or death. And then Chigurh gives the guy the coin and says, you know, don't mix it up with all the other coins because then it'll just be a coin, which it is. And in this book, in uh, All the Pretty Horses, there's, there's some talk about coins and fate and the fact that the coin was just a metal slug that was put in a stamping machine and the maker could have put it in the other way up and that coin would have been reversed. I guess it's almost like this butterfly effect of things that happened. If they'd have happened just slightly differently, fate would be different. And a lot of that is just, it's there and you just read into it what you will. He doesn't sort of put it, to my eyes, he doesn't put it, his philosophy particularly plain on the page. It's uh, you come to it and you, you make of it what you can. It's interesting you went for McCarthy because I've been looking at uh, trying to pick up a copy of Blood Meridian myself recently. Mm. Bizarrely, a discussion of that came up on a YouTube video that I was watching about how it's now considered pretty much to be the great American novel. Mm. And that it's a book that I hadn't really heard of up until that point. Right. And that how yeah. various attempts have been tried to film it and unsuccessfully, mainly because of problems with the studio's end and that is various fundings fallen through and various people dying and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But yeah, it just struck me as the, even seeing the synopsis of the book, a very high level kind of overview. It said, yeah, that's something that kind of interests me in this bizarre take on how he writes with so little fucks <laughs> given to punctuation that it, yeah, it just struck me as quite intriguing. So that, that is on my list to read eventually. It also helps that it's not a particularly long novel, but it sounds like it's quite a dense read. Well, I wouldn't say dense from having read the other books. Like I said, they're not difficult reads. No. Don't be put off by what we said about punctuation. It's not some sort of like intellectually challenging 
feat that he's achieved. The writing is great and it comes off the page quite easily. But if you wanted something even shorter and really gripping to get into, there's Child of God, which is probably the closest thing to a horror novel he ever wrote. Oh, okay. Not come across that one yet. Yeah, so that was All the Pretty Horses. It is the first part of a trilogy, but it very mm. much, having just finished it this morning, it very much stands alone. If there wasn't a follow-up book, it's not like he set it up for a follow-up. It could be a follow-up. It could not be. I don't know anything about the two sequels. As far as I'm concerned, it stands on its own very much. And we shall return in a moment with our final book selection of the episode. Have you visited our Redbubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. And coming over to you, Scott. So uh, what have you got for us this time? Well, I figured that as earlier this year, there was the first Jonathan Carroll book published for, oh, about 10 years in the English language, I would take the opportunity to talk about, well, that and Jonathan Carroll. So I've mentioned Carroll a number of times on the podcast, but just in passing. And I think I've mentioned that he's my favourite living writer. And the more I think about it, he's probably just my favourite writer full stop. I thought I'd take the opportunity to try to explain why and what it is that I think makes his work so special. It's become something of a cliche or something of a truism that you can't pin down what genre Carroll writes in. There's a fantastic essay that Neil Gaiman wrote that's on Jonathan Carroll's website and also on Gaiman's blog, where he talks about this. He, he talks about how different marketers have tried to put him down as literary fiction or slipstream or magical realism or fantasy. And I mean, Gaiman eventually just says the, you know, the only genre that he fits in is Jonathan Carroll. And I think that's pretty much it. There's elements of surrealism in his work. I find myself comparing him sometimes to Robert Aikman in that they both had that very dreamlike approach to plotting and to storytelling. But the surrealism and the dreaminess isn't quite as overt. It's a bit more gentle in Jonathan Carroll's stuff. Most of his work is very rooted and realistic and then takes dives into the strange. And I'd say the other big difference is that Carol is, he does get marketed as a horror writer sometimes, but while terrible things and weird things and frightening things often happen in his books, he seems as much concerned with using these these moments to create a sense of wonder or of beauty or of awe as he is of horror and often these things are all very heavily interlinked he was a very difficult writer to get into back when i, I first started reading his stuff some 30 years ago not because his books are at all difficult they were i say very approachable very easy to read but because at the time they were absolutely fucking impossible to get hold of he is, I think, the definition of a cult writer. I think this is perhaps expanded a bit over the years and he's got a, a larger following these days. But when I got into his stuff in the 90s, 
It seemed like I would either find his stuff in remainder bins going for a couple of pennies or going at second-hand shops for eye-watering amounts of money. His stuff would come out, it would go out of print almost immediately, and yeah, you'd either pick it up cheap or, or hideously expensive. Yeah, I think we're somewhat spoiled nowadays, aren't we? Because uh, yeah. you know, with, with books and, well, particularly books and particularly music, Nowadays, everything is there, you know, either on Amazon or Spotify or whatever. You can find it all pretty much, unless it's mega obscure, and it's all there. Uh, whereas, yeah. like you say, back in the back in the day, you had to seek these things out. It was, uh, it was a challenge, and that was part of the appeal. It was, but it was also deeply frustrating. Let's make life hard again. <laughs> uh, yeah. But happily, yeah, a lot of his stuff, in fact, I think almost all of his stuff is now back in print in one form or another. But I, that wasn't actually the case until comparatively recently. So it's, it's a good time to get into his stuff. So his career started out back in 1980 with a, a novel called The Land of Laughs, which is probably still one of his best-loved books. And... It's a weird book. It's a book about a couple of obsessive fans who decide they want to write a biography of this beloved children's author, a guy called Marshall France, who was living in obscurity in this small town in Missouri and then died. And not much is known about him, so they decide to head out to this town and speak to the people who knew him, visit his house, and just get all the details for this biography. And then things get weird. I was watching an interview with Carol the other day where he was talking about how this wasn't the first novel he'd written, but he'd written a number of novels before this that remain unpublished, and he said he's got no interest in ever publishing them. But he'd started out wanting very much to be a a sort of realistic literary author. And... He he has a process where he doesn't plan his books at all. He basically says, as long as he's got the first line or the title of a book, that's all he needs to get going. Mm. He was talking about how he was writing The Land of Laughs as this relatively down-to-earth, realistic book. And then he got to this point about halfway through where they'd got to Marshall Francis' home and they'd encountered his dog. And then the dog started speaking to one of the characters. And he'd written this bit and thought, hang on, where the hell did that come from? What do I do with this? And then just decided to explore it. And the book became steadily more fantastical and all these weird elements and characters from the book coming to life and and changing the nature of reality in the town and stuff like that. And if any of this reminds you of In the Mouth of Madness, that's because this is the book that got ripped off for that. That sort of then set the template for his career. He has written a couple of books that are less fantastical, that don't have any of these weird elements. But he is very much a master at bringing this very grounded world into contact with these moments of the the miraculous, the inexplicable, the horrific, these intrusions. Sometimes they have reasons or explanations sometimes they are the work of god or the devil or angels or forces from outside sometimes they are just moments of spontaneous magic and sometimes 
There's just no attempt to explain what they are at all. They just happen. But whatever they are, they just change the reality and the lives of the people involved in frightening and sometimes very beautiful ways. And this allows them a freedom to explore all sorts of big ideas of, of philosophy, perhaps, without ever overtly doing so, just going into very strange explorations of, for example, in the book that I'm going to be talking about, uh, Mr. Breakfast, and one of his earlier books, The Ghost in Love, they're both very much about the fact that we're not just a single person, that they we're, we're sort of made up of multitudes, we're made up of the decisions we make. And he uses this sort of magical realist approach to sort of break that down and explore that in a very powerful and emotional way at times. There are lots of other elements that go into a classic Jonathan Carroll novel. The big one for me is the characters. He is fantastic at writing characters who you want to spend time with. A typical Jonathan Carroll character is someone who works in a creative field. He doesn't quite fall into the Stephen King trap of every protagonist is this author from Maine. He's written a couple of books where they're about writers, but rarely fiction writers. More often, his characters are artists or filmmakers, architects, children's entertainers, photographers. They're generally people living fairly privileged and, and wealthy lives, or certainly people living comfortable lives. And then generally, as I said, there'll be some intrusion of the miraculous or, or the horrific in there that will shake things up. And he takes these characters who he's made you fall in love with and then just puts them through hell. And that, I think, makes a lot of his books have a, an emotional punch and a weight to them that I don't really get from too many other writers. He's just... I mean, it's not that there aren't other writers who do that. It's just that he's so damn good at it. Hmm. As we were talking about before with Cormac McCarthy, he's a, a very simple prose stylist. Not, not as brutal as McCarthy and not as stripped back, but at the same time, his prose is very unadorned. There isn't really any overt poetry to it. But at the same time, he is very good at evoking sensation and a sense of beauty in the world and, and a sense of horror and a sense of wrongness and weirdness, just with very simple language. I guess this is one of the reasons why he gets compared to Neil Gaiman so much, because while their books are very, very different, I think Gaiman does something very similar with his language in that he makes the use of simple language look easy. And it's not. It's really not. Mm. And, I mean, there are all sorts of other things, motifs that just go through his books all the way. Like, you'll find a bull terrier in most of his books, and, and half the time that dog will speak to you at some stage. He's also obsessed with fountain pens. About half his books seem to be about fountain pens. Funnily enough, I actually brought a new fountain pen fairly recently. <laughs> It's a nice cigar-shaped one that's uh, been keeping my eye out till it came finally came back in stock, made from solid titanium along with a uh, titanium nib as well. Oh, nice! I'm a sucker for fountain pens myself. I've got one made of bronze. Yeah, there's a, a little little collection of mine that's slowly growing. 
I've got one. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one cheap plastic one that uh, works just fine, but it's not, it doesn't look as nice as the one you're holding up, Matt. Oh. Yeah, I think I've got a cheap plastic one somewhere as well, but I've got no idea where. Anyway. So, as I mentioned, Mr. Breakfast, his latest book, came out this year. He hadn't published a novel in English since 2014. Mr. Breakfast actually came out originally in 2019 in Polish. So he writes in Polish? No, no. It was the translation. So he's not a very marketable writer, or I mean, what's the rationale for that? Basically, he changed publisher and agent around that time. The book oh, went into limbo. Okay. But the Polish right. edition came out and there was an Italian edition. And I'd been wondering for years whether I was going to have to learn Polish to read this fucking thing. But yeah, eventually it did come out earlier this year. Yeah, he's got a huge European following in general. I, I think he's probably better known and more popular in Europe. And particularly in translation, maybe even than he is in English. He's an American writer, but he has been living in Austria since the 1970s. He's been there for 50 years. He's an academic. He teaches creative writing at a university in Austria, though I think he may be retired now. As a result, he's got a huge fandom across Europe and, and I think to some degree in the US. Reminds me a little bit of Richard Lehman in that he was more popular in, in Europe, or at least in the UK, than he was back in mm. his native US. Mm. Yeah, it does happen. But Mr. Breakfast, it was interesting hearing you talking about fate and decisions in Cormac McCarthy, Paul, because it sort of ties in with this. But this takes a very fantastical approach to the whole thing. So Mr. Breakfast is this novel about a, well, it's a, a wide range of characters, but the central protagonist largely is this guy called Graham Patterson, who is a failed stand-up comedian. We're introduced to him sort of through flashback as a biographer, as interview with an ex-girlfriend of his. But then, as we're introduced to him directly as a character, it's just after he's decided, after a disastrous gig in Providence, Rhode Island, just to tie everything together, that stand-up comedy isn't for him, and he's just broken up with his long-term girlfriend, or rather she's broken up with him, because... She wanted more commitment in children, and he just couldn't make that commitment to her. And so he's ended up in this sort of limbo and decided that with stand-up comedy behind him, that he is potentially going to go off and work with his brother in California. He doesn't want to. It feels like he's settling, but he decides that what he's going to do is drive across America and see whether anything inspires him on the way. He's picked up a camera at some stage as well and is experimenting with taking photographs. He's always had an interest in photography. But his car breaks down fairly early on. He's driving down the East Coast before heading across country. His car breaks down in a small town in North Carolina. And while he's waiting for it to be repaired, he's wandering through town and he encounters a tattoo shop. And he's looking at the pictures in the window and he's never had any interest in having a tattoo. 
but decides to go in and browse the wares and gets talking to the woman who runs the shop. And she's talking about all the training that she's had across the world and all the research that she's done. And he's going through all these designs and is absolutely enraptured by it and sees one design in particular that he decides that he really has to have. And it's described as being a bee inside the stomach of a frog, inside the stomach of a hawk, inside the stomach of a lion, nested like Russian dolls. And she refers to it as the breakfast tattoo, because each one of those creatures has eaten the other one for breakfast. What he finds out after he has it is that this is a special tattoo, that they... The woman learned how to do it under mysterious circumstances years back, and over the years has given it to a very small number of people, is people who are drawn to it. And the tattoo has this strange connection with time and possibilities. As he drives away from from the town, he encounters another version of himself on the road. He stops at a rest stop and he encounters a version of himself, a more successful version, driving this big red pickup truck that he's always wanted to have, realises that this is the version of himself that actually made it in stand-up comedy. But the two of them find themselves unable to interact. He tries to shake that off and heads off and eventually encounters the tattooist again who explains something of the history of the tattoo to him and the tattoo basically allows you to experience a very limited number of the paths not taken in life by sort of drawing on the tattoo you can visit not not inhabit but you can visit other lives that you might have lived and see how they played out he does this and he encounters a this version of himself where he did follow some advice that a friend gave him about how to refine his act and actually became a very successful stand-up comedian. Unfortunately for him, that path very quickly goes wrong and he gets killed in it. He suddenly finds himself drawn into the afterlife, this very strange and nightmarish version of the afterlife. I won't spoil it, but it gets very, very weird indeed. And the other path that he finds himself being able to visit is one where he decided to settle down with his, his girlfriend and have kids after all. And he realises that the path that he's on, the middle path, is the one where he develops his skill as a photographer and ends up becoming a world-famous photographer. And he's got the choices now really between these two lives. That sounds like a fairly basic setup and... Then it gets really complicated. It gets really weird as he encounters other people who've had the tattoo and the choices and the complications they've had as a result. And he struggles with making a decision himself and discovers that if you can't commit to one of these lives, then it starts breaking time and reality around you and different parts of time start crashing into you. And it just gets stranger and stranger and stranger. And it's, one of the things I love about Carol's books is you sort of have a setup like that and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know where that's going. You do not know where it's going. You absolutely do not know where it's going. It just keeps taking turns that you'll never expect. And there are all these side plots that don't seem to mean anything that suddenly collide back together in really weird ways. And 
Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful book. I don't think it's his best book, but it's the kind of book that, I mean, Carol's now in his mid-70s, and it feels like the kind of book that someone very late in their life writes, looking back at the possibilities that the past not taken as a process of re-evaluation. And it really has that emotional heft to it. Yeah, it sounds pretty interesting. I've not read any of Carol's stuff, but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued from what people have said about him. Mm. I can't really decide from what I've heard whether it be something I'll enjoy or not, but uh, it's certainly something that an author that I'm interested to give a try. So if I were to read one of his books, which one, I mean, I don't know if you'd recommend this one, but which one would you recommend as a, as a starter? I've really enjoyed Mr. Breakfast, but I would not recommend it as someone's introduction to Jonathan Carroll. The one that really seems to suit people as an introduction, though it's not really typical of his larger work, is his first book, The Land of Laughs. Land of Laughs. Well, it's won all yeah. sorts of awards for very good reason. Sure. It's a very accessible book. It's not as out-and-out out weird as a lot of his stuff. My introduction was a mm. book called The Child Across the Sky, which is a very strange book, and I, I'd say is, is quite a Lynchian book in a lot of ways. It deals with uh, filmmaking and creativity and the way stories evolve and gets into some very surreal places. Mm. And if you want to go for absolute balls-out weirdness... The book I'd recommend starting with is The Ghost in Love, which is still one of the strangest books I've ever read, and I loved every word of it. Okay. Yeah, at some point we should probably discuss one of Carol's short stories. Sure. He's not as well known as a short story writer. He's written quite a lot of short stories, and I don't think they're quite as good as his novels, but there are a few that I think are exceptional enough that we'll probably pick one and talk about it. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well... It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thank you to Derek Robertson. I'm just looking at the next entry in the list and thinking, part of me thinks this is a great name, and then the other part of me thinks, hang on a minute, this is going to take a little bit of focusing on. Mr. Binary. <laughs> So, thank you very much to 10100011101. And just out of curiosity, I put it into a converter and it comes out as 333 in decimal. Ah, ah I wonder if we've got an unknown yes. armies fan there. <laughs> or half the Antichrist. Or a follower of Thelema. That's 333 is the number of the abyss. Yes, anyway, thank you very much to the singular Holmes. And thanks to Chris Lovell. And thank you very much to Lorenzo Sandoval. And thank you to Phil LaDouceur. And thanks to Sir Trash Panda. <laughs> Love that name. And thank you much to Chris Stevens. And thank you to Tusi. And thanks to Mr. Andrew Hobson. Hopefully I get the emphasis right on this. So thank you very much to Jay Zala. And thank you to Robert Dean. Thanks to Stephen Jackson. Thank you very much to Sophie Lay. 
And a familiar name here, thank you very much to Hilmar Emstrand. And thanks to Jork McGork. <laughs> oh, I love that. You're getting all the good ones. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Kieran Medley. And thank you finally to Michelle Durst. And of course, if we have completely bollocksed any of your names up there, please do let us know and we shall unbollocks them. Well, at least we'll have another go. That's the most we can probably say. Yeah. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know uh, whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, discussing it on social media with like-minded people, or I mean, you don't have to write a book about it, but if you did, we wouldn't object. And good luck finding like-minded people on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Just write a little note saying you recommend this and drop it into every Jonathan Carroll book or every Cormac McCarthy book you can find <laughs> in the bookstore. There's plenty of James Herbert out there as well. Okay, well, that's it for this show. You've been listening to Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.